where we go through the book of, of uh, Matthew. This, this year, we're going to go through the genealogy of Jesus. And so I'm going to read for us part of the genealogy from Matthew chapter 1, and then we're going to focus in on one of the people in that genealogy, and I'll read from Genesis chapter 38. Not all of it is right in your bulletin, so I will kind of guide you in what we're doing. And because there are lots of Hebrew names, I'm just going to do the heavy lifting for us this morning. You can just uh, be along for the ride, not have to read aloud. So the genealogy of Jesus, Matthew 1, 1 through 3, and then 38, verses 6 through 8, and 11 through 30. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Let's look at Genesis 38, which highlights the story of Judah and Tamar. Verses 6 through 8, 11 through 30. And Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. I'm going to fast forward here. Onan is also put to death by the Lord. And we pick up in verse 11. He was also wicked. Um, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timrah, uh, sorry, Timnah with the sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira of the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and that she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it, he said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, taking off her veil she had put on in the and she put on the garments of her widowhood. <clears throat> when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back to the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim on the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And she, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. 
And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name is called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zerah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the parts that are clear, the parts that are confusing, Lord, all of it is from you. We pray now for your Holy Spirit to join us in this room as he always is and to be present to us as we open your word, as we talk about these things. Father, we pray that uh, you would open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas, right? I mean, happy Thanksgiving. What a great passage for today. Just what you were expecting coming to church. Um, we're going to be looking at the bagats uh, of the New Testament. So this genealogy, a lot of times it's called the bagats because if you grew up King James Version of the Bible, it's so-and-so bagat, so-and-so bagat, so-and-so bagat, so-and-so. And it's usually one of those parts of the Bible, to be honest, that we skim or we skip over because it's kind of boring. And yet if you do so, you're going to miss out. This genealogy is really unique in all the ones of the Bible and certainly unique in all of ancient Near Eastern literature because um, this, this genealogy has got some really different things sprinkled in. Let me explain. Matthew, whose genealogy we're reading, and we're going to go through this all the Sundays of Advent, he is writing to a Jewish audience. All of his explanations and uh, are sort of directed to the Jewish people. And his purpose is, and you see this at the beginning of the genealogy, is to show that Jesus is bona fide. Jesus is legit. He's trying to show, like, Jesus goes back to David, who is the great king of all the great kings of the Old Testament, and before that to Abraham, who's the father of the nation. He's like, Jesus is a good Jewish boy in the line of the kings. That's his purpose. And yet... If you read this genealogy closely, which we're going to do over the next month, you're going to see that they're included in this genealogy, not just the names that you would expect. Now, the genealogy is traced through the father's line. So it's all the daddies going back over and over. But in this genealogy, there are four women mentioned. And they're not, if you, if you study the Old Testament at all, they're not the four women we sort of expect to be mentioned. So you know, you'd expect maybe if this was like heroes of the Old Testament, we'd get Sarah, who was married to Abraham, or Hannah, who is the mother of Samuel. Instead, you get these four women who are kind of remarkable in a couple of ways. One is that most of them are not even Jewish. So the four women are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. And of those, we know Rahab was a Canaanite. We know that Ruth was a Moabite. And we know that uh, as, as you get further on and you get to Bathsheba, she is very likely, her husband's a, a Hittite, uh, and it's very likely she is too. Something like not Jewish. The other thing that you get in this, the, the reason these women are remarkable, is they sort of have a whiff of scandal about them. Uh, they're, they're, these are not the kind of nice Christmas stories you expect. Uh, you have Rahab, who's a prostitute. 
you have Ruth, who is this uh, woman who's very poor, who's, who's, who's kind of a refugee. Um, and then you have this story, Tamar, sexual entrapment. And then as we look a couple weeks from now, we're going to get to Bathsheba, which is clearly a hashtag me too story. I mean, this, th- these are hard stories. And, and here's the thing I want us to see is um, the overarching point in doing this miniseries, as we look at the four mothers of Jesus in this passage, is I want you to see what Matthew's doing here. He's saying, yes, Jesus is the legit king. He is the royal king in the line of David, goes all the way back to Abraham, but he is a king for everyone. He's the king for everyone. He's a king for the outsiders. I mean, if you're here this morning and you feel like, I just don't fit, I don't fit with other Christians, I'm not cleaned up and nice. I don't feel like I fit here. You know, you are, this is Jesus' kind of people. You are Jesus' kind of people. And, and what we see here is Jesus also includes in his family, his kin, include people that we might raise an eyebrow at. We might be like, really? This is in the Bible. This is Christmas story. Thanks, Jesus. You know, but you're, if, if, if you feel like that, you are Jesus' kind of people. That's what I want you to see in this. Um, so four weeks, four women. And today's story, as we look at the story of Tamar and Judah, it's a story of scandalous grace. It's a story of a woman who does a bold and daring act. It's a story of a man much in need of redemption. And it's a story of Jesus' kind of people. And if you have young ears around you, I'm just going to tell you I'm going to be very discreet, so you don't need to worry. Um, I'm not going to... I even left out the juiciest parts of this narrative, if you can believe it. So, um, so here's what I want you to see. We're going to look at this uh, three headings. The righteousness of Tamar. The righteousness. The redemption of Judah. And finally, the kin of the king. And uh, before I, I go on, I just want to give a nod. A lot of my source material comes from a writer, a Carolyn Custis James, who's done a lot of work on uh, women, lost women of the Bible, is what she calls them. Great story here. Um, so the righteousness of Tamar. Now, I didn't start with the first couple of verses here, so I'm going to give you some background. Tamar marries Ur, E-R, son of Judah. Judah is her father-in-law. And after some period of time, says that, Ur was a wicked man, and the Lord put him to death. We don't know any more about that, what happened there. And so Judah marries off Tamar to his daughter-in-law. Now, that may sound odd to us, uh, especially if you think about your brother-in-law. You may be like, not real interesting. But like this was actually done as a way of providing for this woman and providing for the family line. It ensured that Ur's family continued, continued on, but it also provided a safety net for women in the society. Um, as, a, as a widow, Tamar would have been the most vulnerable person in the society. And we see that she is widowed twice. She's first married to Ur, he dies, and then Judah marries her to his son Onan, who again, wicked man, God puts him to death, and so she is a widow by the time Bible scholars estimate she's maybe 20 years old. She is very young. Now, in that society, widows have no options. There is a, she can't go get a job. She's not allowed to own land. Uh, and really, the provision for her has to come through family. It has to come through family. And so there was a law in Israel, the law of the Leverite. 
Uh, lever means brother. And so that's why Judah follows the law in marrying Tamar to his next son in line. That's, that's what he's doing. He's following the law there. And this was to provide for her and to protect her. But after, after the second boy dies, Judah's like, no way am I marrying her off to the third one. Now, he says, sure, you just wait. Tamar, go back home to your father's household. In a couple years, I'm going to call you. Sheila, maybe he's like 11. Let's just, let's say, maybe he's 11. Like, when he hits 15, I'll call you up. Right? And, and so she does so. But he's, he, clearly, in the passage here, it says, he had no intention of following through on this. He has no intention of making sure that she gets to marry because he's like, I don't know what's wrong with this woman. She's a bad apple. She's got a curse. Something is wrong with her. And I want you to just to see what a difficult position this put Tamar in. Um, when she realizes he has no intention of fulfilling his commitment, she is without options. Uh, and, and she can't make her father-in-law do what's right. And so she does this bold and desperate act. And I know this is what raises eyebrows with us, right? Um, she plans to sexually entrap her father-in-law. And she takes off the clothing of her widowhood, probably black, just like we wear today, uh, in mourning. And she puts on the clothing of a prostitute and a veil over her face. And she prepares to go and find him. Now, notice this in the story. She doesn't just know where Judah will be. She knows what kind of man Judah is. I mean, she knows he's going to be coming back from shearing the sheep. But she's gotten to know this guy by now. She's like, I know what's going to happen. If I dress this way and I sit by this place in the road, he is going to proposition me. It's like, this is not a guy who's like morally upstanding, going to like walk right by. And sure enough, this is what Judah does. He engages her. Uh, he engages her for prostitution. And, uh, and in this, there's this funny little exchange that happens here that may be weird for us, but like, he says, look, uh, she's like, how are you going to pay me for this? He's like, I don't have uh, payment on me. I'm going to give you my cord, my signet ring, and my staff. And the, the Bible theologian, uh, the Bible scholar Robert Alter says, you know, that's akin to giving someone your wallet and your car keys. It's like, these are, hold on to these. These are good, and, and I'm going to exchange these for a goat. So he sent, goes back home. He sends a friend back with a goat to pay her. But when he gets there, the friend gets there, no woman on the side of the road. In fact, the people around are like, we don't know what you're talking about. There's never a woman on the side of the road right here. Fast forward three months. Judah is pregnant. And, I mean, sorry, well, <laughs> that would be really a, a, a twist in this story, wouldn't it? Uh, Tamar is pregnant, and Judah finds out. And he's not just angry. He is over-the-top enraged. In fact, he demands that she be killed. And he has the power this is amazing, but he has the power over her life and death. Right? He has the power to bring her out and kill her. That's what he says. Um, and, you know, this, this, is the, this is where the kind of Perry Mason law and order music kicks in. Like, what's going to happen? You know, is she going to be burned alive? What's going to happen? And in this moment, she's being dragged out. And she says... Um, these things, the man who has this wallet and this car keys, I mean, this signet ring, this cord, this staff, this is the father of my baby. And, and this is where, like, um, the whole thing turns. Because Judah says something really peculiar. He doesn't say, okay, okay. 
He says, she is more righteous than I am. That word in Hebrew means just. She is more just than I am. What do you use the word righteous? So I want to use that word. In Hebrew, it's a word I want you to know. It's called tzadek. T-Z-A-D-E-K. Tzadek, righteous, just. And isn't that fascinating? I mean, he doesn't say like, she did right, I did wrong. He's not like, hey, sexual entrapment, good idea. But he's like, no, she is more righteous. Compared to her, she's done nothing. I have done great evil. That's what he's saying by saying this. Um, Now, why why would he say that? And before we judge her, and and American audiences, modern church people are like, ugh, this is an ick story, right? Um, I want you to remember, she is powerless. And she is merely exploiting the double standard of her day and, to some degree, our day which is that a man can sleep with any woman he wants to and get away with it. Woman sleeps with someone, and suddenly she is ready to be killed for it. She's exploiting this double standard. And when the crime is exposed, I mean, you see, he has the power to kill her. And yet, what does she do? What does he call her action in doing this? Tzadek, righteous, doing justice. There was something that she was seeking that was making him do justice. Now, I know uh, some of you really recoil at that word justice, especially like the word here has the connotations of social justice. And I know that if you are politically conservative, some people are like, ugh. Like that word has been co-opted by the liberal left and they've made everybody into a victim, you know, and like everything is about like making people getting what's theirs. And so... In our society, a lot of people are like, I don't want to hear anything about social justice. And yet, here's this thing. Justice, doing tzaddik, this is a central theme of the Bible. This is a central thing in the, in the Old Testament, and it's a word that we don't need to flush. We actually need to learn to reuse in the right way. Tzaddik is all over the pages of the Bible. So when most people hear the word righteousness, they think something like moral purity, Sexual purity. That's why we raise an eyebrow at this story, which is not filled with that. Um, but listen to scripture. In the, in the Bible, tzaddik is a word that has the connotations of like doing right in all your relationships. And I'm going to borrow heavily from uh, Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, for a lot of this. Justice is care for the vulnerable. It's care for the people who are on the margins of society about to fall through the cracks. In Scripture, there are four groups of people. We call them, ask any deacon in our church. They know these words, the quartet of the vulnerable, the widow, the poor, the orphan, and the stranger. And God's people are commanded to do justice to those four groups, to show tzaddik to those four groups. Today, we might think of people like migrant workers, refugees, uh, people elderly who are on fixed incomes, single mothers, Uh, the homeless, they're they're just people whose lives could be easily pushed just a little bit that puts them into a place of crisis. That's what's going on. The justice of society in the Bible, over and over, God evaluates his people. He judges his people according to whether or not they exercise tzaddik, how righteous or how just they are toward those four groups. In fact, this actually is something that God identifies himself by. 
He identifies himself as one who's, a, who's closely aligned, his heart is closely aligned with justice. You know, uh, you have a, a job, many of you, and if somebody asks you about what you do, you know that you're ask, they're asking you about your public life. Like, what do you do most of the time in the public? So people ask me what I do. I'm like, oh, I'm Jeff Bradford. I'm pastor of a church in downtown Raleigh, right? That's how I publicly identify. How does God publicly identify in the Old, Old Testament? How does he do it? Defender of widows. He's, he's, he's the one who is a, the father to the fatherless. God publicly identifies himself with Sadek, and he expects his people to exercise the same kind of care. Uh, so many people ask, like, hey, why do we use the term justice? Like charity, that seems like a better word. Maybe mercy, that seems like a better word. The problem is that both those words imply a good but optional activity. Charity is not charity if it's demanded. And over and over in the Bible, what we actually see is works of righteousness, works of justice is what God's people are called to do. Matthew 6, Jesus tells his followers, when you care for the poor, you are doing acts of righteousness. So important to our Savior. Uh, In the book of Job, Job calls out the people for every failure. He calls a failure to help the poor a sin, a lack of tzaddik. Not sharing your bread would be unrighteousness. See, I have to ask this question. Do we understand that at our church? Do we look at the Bible that way? Like there are people in our city that God calls us to actually care about what's happening with them as part of like the very essence of our salvation. Not as an icing on the top, extra, something else. You know, this isn't a signal like talking about justice. It's not like, oh no, CTK is going liberal this Sunday. This is central to the heart of God. The Old Testament people were disciplined by him. Northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Sent into exile in part because they failed to exercise justice. Paul, when he is finally like comes to Christ, 14 years later he appears before the apostles. And they're like doing the scratch and sniff test with Paul. Hey, your theology right? They find him completely legit and they say one thing. Make sure you remember the poor. And Paul says, I'm very, that's what I'm eager to do. Sadek, remember this. See, remember social justice. And, and this is what this story is all about. That for Tamar, what is she doing? She is righteous because she is forcing him to do Sadek. She is forcing him to do what is right for regarding the like, she is on the margins of society. And she's forcing his hand. It's not a secondary thing. Now, but there's another thing that she's doing. Her actions are part of the redemption story of this man, Judah. Let me show you how that works. This is a part of the larger kind of downward spiral in Judah's life. He, and it's kind of a three strikes. So I'm going to take you through strike one, strike two, strike three. Judah is one of 12 sons of a man named Jacob, one of the patriarchs of Israel. I thought we had a lot of sons. We have six. This, this guy's twice, twice the family we have. So 12 sons. Judah is one of the boys. Now, there is in the family, one of the youngest sons is named Joseph, and he is daddy's favorite. Now, some of you just got through Thanksgiving, and you can tell me exactly who daddy's favorite is, and you're not happy about it. I can tell when you talk about it. Like, you know, favoritism has this way of destroying families, and nothing different in this family. So here's Joseph daddy's favorite, who dad kind of dotes on. And what's worse, Joseph is also a braggart. 
So he has had no shame in like telling his brothers, like, had this dream that like I was the sun and you're the planets and you're all bowing down to me. Right? Like, no problem. You know, they hate him at this point. What's more, uh, Jacob has this multicolored robe made for his son. Like, in case no one knew, I just want to make sure we advertise in technicolor that this is the favorite boy. So one day, all the brothers are out in the field. They're out working, and they see Joseph coming from far off. He's wearing technicolored robes, and they're like, it's our moment. This is our time. And they plan to kill him. But Judah is like, no, let's not just kill him. Let's make some money off of it. So they throw him in a pit. They wait till a traveling group of people come by from Egypt. They sell him into slavery. And then they take the robe. Judah takes the robe. They kill a goat and put goat's blood on this robe, rip it up a little bit, take it back to daddy. And say, and they come to him, and they, Judah says this. He says, hakernah, in Hebrew, recognize. You recognize this robe? Of course, Jacob is like, yeah, I recognize that robe. That's my favorite son's robe. He bursts into tears, assumes the boy is dead. Strike one. Like, this is not a guy you want to do business with, right? Judah. Second strike is what we see in this passage. He is allowing this woman, this probably barely out of teens woman, to fall through the cracks of society. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's like, I am not going to give my son, Shelah, to her. I'm not going to do what's required by the Leverite law. I'm not going to make sure that she is provided for, that she doesn't starve to death. He does this. And she's powerless, according to the law. There's nothing she can do about this. Strike two. And then strike three we see toward the end of this passage. Strike three here. Um, Notice what happened when Tamar's dark secret is exposed. When Judah finds out that, that the woman's pregnant, notice his reaction. He says two words in Hebrew. It says, bring, burn. Bring her out and burn her to death. Now, just to kind of highlight how crazy this is, this is nowhere else in the Bible. God's people never burned other people alive. And Judah not only has this kind of power over her life but he, and death, but he also, you can see the malice in it. He doesn't just want her dead. He wants her to suffer as she dies. All the hatred, of, uh, as, as he's like had all this anger about the death of Er and Onan is directed at this poor woman. And he has no shame in calling for her to be burned alive. You see how far gone? Well, let's strike three. How far gone is, is Judah? How far down the spiral has he gone? Um, he is about to do an enormous evil. He is about to send an innocent girl to a brutal death. Time out real quick. Let me just say that this isn't so different from us. I mean, this story is horrifying. And yet, aren't we also people for whom things that are not dealt with, secrets, bitterness, blame, I mean, you've just come from Thanksgiving. They have the power to grow. Some people say time heals all wounds. That is the biggest lie. You know, you know what heals wounds is confrontation, forgiveness, honesty, uh, reconciliation. That's what heals wounds. But blame turns into bitterness, turns into hatred. And that's what happens in this story. And it's not so far afield from us. Yes, way more violent, 
But the same kind of violence and anger is in so many of our own hearts. What a violent scene. They're dragging out Tamar. Picture it. They're dragging her out to be burned. And she doesn't have a trial. I mean, she just gets a couple words out as they're dragging her out. And she says this. She says, um, recognize. In Hebrew, hakernah. The same words that Judah said back before to his daddy about the robe. Robert Alter, biblical scholar, says this. He, he'd done some research. He found this ancient um, rabbi who commentated on this passage about 1,500 years ago who wrote this. And he wrote, The Holy One, praise be he, said to Judah, You deceived your father with a goat? By your life, Tamar will deceive you with a goat. The Holy One, praise be he, said to Judah, You said to your father, Hakernah, recognize? By your life, Tamar will say to you, Hakernah. She says, recognize. Of course, she's talking about the signet ring and the cord and the staff. She's talking about his wallet and keys. Do you, you recognize these things? But don't you understand that those words have so much more meaning in this passage? Judah, do you recognize what you've become? Do you recognize what you're doing? Do you recognize that you've gotten to this point that you are happy to let an innocent woman go to her death? Do you recognize what's happened in your life? Do you recognize how dangerous this position is? I mean, her life is hovering over a fire. His life is hovering over an abyss. I mean, what happens to this man if he goes on with this act? Rest of his life carries this dark secret that he allowed this to happen. Judah does a remarkable thing. He does a remarkable thing here in telling the truth. I mean, think about this. This is... Ancient Israel, y'all, this isn't like big city. This is a little town. Everybody knows everybody's business. If he owns this, everybody's going to know for generations. Everyone will know. And when he says, she is more righteous than I, this isn't just the turning point for Tamar. This is the turning point for Judah, too. This is the redemption story. Because after this, we see Judah is a different man. After this story... Do you remember what happens? Do you know what happens? Now, Judah and his brothers are living with dad still. Eleven brothers, back with dad. They are, uh, they, they, the famine comes to the land, and they go down to Egypt to buy grain. And there they encounter this, the uh, right-hand man of Pharaoh, who happens to be this very difficult person for them to deal with, treats them harshly. And so he sells them grain, sends them on their way, and as they're leaving, they find a cup in one of the sacks. They, they get chased out by the Egyptian officials who say, wait a second, somebody has stolen something from that official. They bring him back in, and it's the youngest son, Benjamin, daddy's new favorite. Daddy's new favorite. Replace Joseph. And Judah does something remarkable in that moment. Instead of letting this sort of happen and the son, Benjamin, stay behind, the official says, like, you can go, just leave Benjamin here in jail. Judah says, my life for his. I'll stay here, let him go. I mean, do you see what's happened with Judah? He's gone from a man who all he cares about is himself, all he cares about is his own name, all he cares about is, is, is what he wants, to a man who's like, I will lay down my life for my brother. What, what's happened to him? Salvation is what's happened to him. Redemption is what's happened to him. He became a person who lays down his life for his brother because Judah met the Lion of Judah, all because of this woman, Tamar, all because of her. You know, later on in this passage, we read about the birth of two boys. She has twin sons, 
by Judah. The boys' names are Perez and Zerah. And we sort of skip over this. That's, uh, one is Breach. She, calls it, she calls, names him Breach, which also means breakthrough in Hebrew, Perez. It's a great name for your kids, by the way, because it means breakthrough. And this story is a picture of grace that has broken through in Judah's life. Redemption that has broken through in his life. And my life, your life, every person needs this kind of grace breakthrough, just like Judah sees. Because what happens to Judah? He, he hakernah. He, he, he recognizes. He recognizes first, hakernah, that he needed a, he, he's a sinner. That he has gone down this pathway of self-destruction and that his life will continue down that pathway of self-destruction. And that is true for every one of us. I mean, from those who look the goodest on the outside to those who look the baddest on the outside. You know, the reality is all of us are rebels against the word. All of us are those who inside are internally fighting against him. And if what is on the inside is brought out and we actually saw it, we actually hakarna, we recognized it, we would see we too. Every one of us stands condemned. Second, Judah recognized, and you need to recognize, all of us need to recognize how much we need Jesus, the Lion of Judah. You know, here in the story, Tamar is punished for Judah's sins. That's what's happening. She's about to be dragged out and punished for his sins. The real Judah, the Lion of Judah, was dragged out and punished for our sins. In the story, Judah orders Tamar's destruction. But the Lion of Judah steps out and goes to the cross of his own accord. Again, Judah was anything but righteous. The Lion of Judah, the only true righteous one who came to take away the sins of the world. I mean, do you see how this is a redemption story for this man? He was never the same. The reality is every person, every person needs the same redemption story. This redemption story is offered to you this morning. God wants to do the same thing in your life. He calls you, huck or not. Do you recognize? Do you see? The last thing that this passage shows us, you know, we, we look at this, you might go like, why, why is this in the Bible? And why is this highlighted for us in, in, in Advent of all time? I mean, here's what I want you to see. This is exactly what Jesus' kind of people are like. This is exactly what Jesus' kind of people are like. Tamar and Judah... I mean, these don't, this is unsavory. It doesn't fit the Hallmark shop Christmas. It doesn't fit the, the uh, Precious Moments Nativity scene Christmas. But this is what Christmas is really about. It fits the real Christmas story. You know, the one that involved the dirty manger and a stable and some dirty shepherds who come to worship? Like, not the best of society, the lowest of society. Every year, our family, we love to watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Anybody else? You know, the one where Charlie Brown buys the worst tree, right? Like, you just blockhead, you messed it up again. But my favorite point in the, in the, is where Linus tells the Luke 2 Christmas story. And he goes verse by verse. He reads the whole thing out loud. And then at the end, he says, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. That's what Christmas is all about. And that's what I want to say to you this morning about Genesis 38. This is what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. It's about a rescue. See, Tamar is for us a picture of Jesus. 
I've heard people foolishly say things about, about the genealogy of Jesus, like, oh, look how women messed up the line of Jesus, the, the, the genealogy of Christ. No, this woman rescued the line of Christ. Judah was on a pathway toward self-destruction. And her bold action was part of the rescue story of this man. Tamar is a picture of a rescuer. That's what Christmas is all about. It's not about nostalgia or family or Christmas trees or presents or even warm, fuzzy feelings. It's a story about an incredible rescue, an incredible rescue. And second, this is what Christmas is all about. It's a king for everyone, for those who don't fit, for those whose lives feel like a tragedy, for those whose lives are a mess, for those who are down and out, for the Judas of the world. This is, this is Jesus' kind of people. And if you're here this morning and you're like, I don't fit this church, and I don't fit these kind of people, and my life is not neat and tidy, it is something I can barely hide. You know what? You are Jesus' kind of people. You know, our world is dying to hear this kind of Christmas story, not the nostalgia one, not the one of perfect families and stockings and everything's happy and bright, but this kind of Christmas story. You know, where we hear that like God is the one who identifies himself with the quartet of the vulnerable. God is the one who cares about justice for the poor and the weak and the orphan and the stranger. God is, the, God is father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. Not a, hey, let's do something nice for people since it's a Christmas story, but an all-year-long kind of justice. And then also that God gives rescue. Our, our, our world is dying to hear of a God who gives rescue to those who are real sinners, not pretend sinners or theoretical sinners, but real sinners who are willing to hock or not. See, this is what we find in this story and as we go through the rest of these. There is no soul beyond the reach of God's mercy, God's grace. And there's nobody so good that they don't need it. And that this same Christmas story shows us the grace of people who don't deserve it, and yet God is over and abundant. You know, there's no Black Friday inventory that runs out on grace. This is what we see. There is always more, more grace for real sinners. These are Jesus' kind of people. You can be too. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that the Bible isn't the cleaned up version, that it's the real steal, the story of the real deal. Lord, we pray today, Father, that you would help us to believe more than we disbelieve, that this kind of grace is available to us the one who's the long-term Christian, the one who doesn't think they belong here. Lord, none is outside. Lord, we thank you that you are the king for everyone. We pray for faith to believe it today in Christ's name. Amen.